Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We are getting near the end of the Corinthian letters. Uh, I hope it's been a beneficial study for you. I have certainly um, enjoyed it, benefited from it. Uh, if you didn't... St- if you weren't reading along with us as we started, I hope you are by now. Uh, it is so profitable, if not reading, you know, listening. Um, but you'll know that um, it's all about relationships, especially the second letter. Um, when I'm thinking about the second letter, I think it's like, because the first letter, Paul had all kinds of corrective stuff to say. It's like being a parent, you know, when you correct your child, first you have to correct the child, and then after you correct him, you have to, like, restore the relationship because it kind of went through some rough time during the corrective period. So, like, 1 Corinthians is primarily Paul straightening things out, and 2 Corinthians, he's restoring the relationship again. At least that's how it looked to me. Um, But as he's doing that, as he's continuing in this process of of restoring and rebuilding this relationship with the Corinthian church, Paul uses um, a word in a very unusual way. It's a very intense word. It's a very emotive word. It's a word that we don't normally see in a positive light, although Paul uses it in a positive way. Uh, It's a word that even Paul himself normally uses in a very negative way, and yet he, he uses it here in a way that's very positive. Again, talking about restoration of relationship. And before I read the text, we'll just do a little bit differently this morning. Before reading this text, I want to look at the whole chapter really quickly, just really super quickly, because... Everything from like verse 4 on in this chapter is there for the purpose of demonstrating what he said in the first three verses. It's like proof of the legitimacy, uh, bona fides, if you want, of what he says in those first couple of verses. And everything after that um, is, is all to support that. The whole back half of the chapter is this long list, and you're probably familiar with it, of Paul just listing all the stuff he went through the imprisonments, the being beat up, the being flogged, the being in, in the sea and shipwrecked, and all that stuff. And, and honestly, most of the time, just speaking for myself, you read that, we read it kind of like a laundry list, just like boom. But if you, and I do suggest you read that. You can read that this afternoon or this evening at home. Read that list kind of slowly. And as you look at each one of those in that whole second half of the chapter, just pause at each one and go, wow, what was that like? You know, what did that look like? What did that feel like? How did Paul survive that? And that'll give you, I think, a much better appreciation for the whole second half of the chapter. And then the middle part, um, kind of like the, the second quarter, I guess, what it would be, um, all the way from the midpoint back to verse 4, is about Paul, the matter of Paul's financial relationship with Corinth. And it's not about the offering that he was raising in the previous chapters. This is about the fact that when Paul was in Corinth, he never was a burden to them. He never took funds from them. And his whole backdrop in the, of the culture as to why that was, it goes back to Paul's experience in Athens. But he explains all of that, why he, why he served the way he did when he was with them. And those two things, why he served the way he did when he was with them, you know, relying on other churches, not Corinth, to take care of him. And then that whole second half where he talks about, again, the imprisonments and the beatings and all that, is all to lend credence to what he says in these first three verses. So having said all that, uh, let's go ahead and look at just these first three verses. That's what I want to focus on this morning. So Paul writes this, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. 
but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Simply ask that our hearts and minds would be open to everything you have for us today, Lord, as we look to your word. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about jealousy. Jealousy, yeah. There's a word that we don't normally use in a positive way. Uh, if you refer to a man as a jealous husband, you're probably not complimenting him, right? Uh, our parent, as parents, after our kids come home from some time at the neighbor's, and they have more cool to toys than we do, we say, well, you need to appreciate the toys you have and not be jealous, right? We use the word, you know, like that. Again, not, not positively. Um, in Scripture... In Scripture, it's almost always, you know, negative. Um, we're told that, you know, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. That's pretty harsh because they were jealous, okay? Um, Acts 17 and other places talks about the Jews becoming jealous of what Paul was preaching and other Christians were preaching. They form a mob and they start beating people up. That's not good. Um, Romans 13, 13, Paul writes this. Let us behave properly, there's the word, properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. So that's a pretty impressive list of, of activities. Paul's put the word jealousy in, it's, it's, it's bad, right? Not good. First um, Corinthians 3, Paul writes of the Corinthians themselves, you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not acting like, like mere men? In Galatians 5, Paul is jealousy among the, the works of the carnal flesh. And that's, again, a pretty hefty list that he includes there. Uh, and not just Paul, James. Uh, listen carefully to James chapter 3. Uh, he writes this, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So the word just gets used negatively a lot and in a really serious way. It's, it's a serious thing. And if you've ever personally had to deal with a really jealous person, it, it, it's, it's hard to deal with, right? But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Well, if jealousy is bad. How can you have a godly jealousy? And I know a lot of people struggle with some of the things that, that the Bible says that God says about himself. I think the one that most of us would think of would be Exodus uh, 20, verse 5, where God's talking about idols, and he says, You shall not worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And this verse, and there's a few more that I like it, a lot of people honestly, sincerely struggle with. I mean, we're told God is good, right? But if God is good, how can he be jealous? Because jealousy is bad. How, do, how does that work? So there's some confusion there. Um, what's, what's going on here? It would be easy if the word for jealousy when it was bad was one you know, Greek or Hebrew word, and the word for it when it was good was another, but no luck there. It's the same word, sorry. No, 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 no. no. And the word, and you're probably going to recognize it um, when, when I give it to you, uh, the word that's used here in Corinthians is zelos. And it comes right in English as zeal. 
So when you read about zeal in the Bible and you read about jealousy, it's usually the same word. And so that's kind of why it pays us to look a little more closely because when we read about zeal, that sounds good, right? To be zealous, that's good. But jealous, that's bad. Well, how do you know what the original author had in mind if they used the same word both times, right? What, what, what do you do there? So um, what does zelos mean? Because that's the word that, that Paul uses and James uses. In the dictionary sense, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's, its origin is the word heat. So it, it's a hot kind of a, of a thing, right? Um, it's jealousy as of a husband, uh, of an enemy. It's of malice. It's the practice of envy. It's a fervent mind, indignation. Again, jealousy or zeal. That all's helpful, but not doesn't solve the problem. So to look a little bit more deeply at the word, one of the things that we can do, um, and I should note, because my wife tells me to note this, um, that the reason we look at the Greek behind the word is because, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek, right? But it actually goes a little deeper than that. Because, for example, all of us here this morning speak English, right? Are we conscious of the fact we also think in English? And we sometimes buy into the, into the notion that the writers of Scripture, well, they thought in English too, right? They just happened to write in Greek. But they thought in English. No, they didn't. They either thought in Aramaic, Hebrew, or Greek, right? And whether they thought in any of those, they ultimately put it in. So what we're trying to do, especially in a case like this, where the meaning of the word's a little elusive, is to get into what they were thinking. Now, we're never trying to go beyond the written text. We're not doing that. But we want to know when these... Writers put these words on the page. What were they thinking? And so one of the things we can do when we're trying to find that out, it's not always helpful, but in this case it is, is to go back to the actual word's origins. Now, sometimes that doesn't help. It just means what it means. But in this case, looking at the word's origins uh, turned out to be really surprising. The first place we, we normally go when we look at like a word like zelos, looking at it where it came from, is its earliest uses, and it's typically in poets and philosophers. And the reason for that is those are the two groups of people who wrote things down and people kept what they wrote, right? Not that they were smarter than anybody else, but their stuff got kept. So when we find these old words, we find them in the philosophers like Plato and those guys and in the great poets or playwrights, right? Well, this particular word is found almost exclusively in one group, just one group. Everybody used it, but most of the use was in one group, and that was in the playwrights. And they used it in writing one particular kind of play. And that was the tragedy. The Greek tragedians used this word more than anything else. Now, in case you don't, you're not up on Greek tragedies, you know, I can't see why it wouldn't be. In case you're not up on Greek tragedies, beyond being just tragic, um, there were certain elements to be aware of. And there was a point to this, so please hang with me. Um, the tragedies had certain elements to them. Um, they were very human stories, right? They didn't involve weird things like you know, animals and things. They were human stories. Um, they were very emotive. A lot of human emotion was part of the tragic um, poems, the tragic plays. Um, and if they were written well, they were written in a way that just like sucked you in. You know those really good stories that just suck you in? We were watching the grandkids the other day. And Joyce put on the Chronicles of Narnia, and I know it was her intention to put it on and leave the room. It just sucked her right in. She was sitting down watching it with the kids before 
just that fast. So a really well-written, tra- and that's not a tragedy, by the way. It just sucks you right in. There were human stories, human emotions really draw you in, and they have one more characteristic. They have horrible endings. The endings are bad, right? And if you want some examples, without getting into Greek, there's some great English examples. Shakespeare wrote Greek tragedies. Hamlet, okay? Now, if you're not into reading Shakespeare, there's a great movie version. Glenn Close, Mel Gibson, how many have seen it? Great movie. Oh, horrible ending. You know, fair Hamlet, thou art slain. Doesn't even know it. Dead man walking, right? Um, just recently learned that Denzel Washington has done Macbeth. Anybody watch it? I tried, freaked me out. I had to turn it off. Um, if that was, it's a weird one, yeah. Um, if you want something a little more contemporary, and probably the best example, um, John Steinbeck wrote Greek tragedies of mice and men, Gary Sinise and John Malkovich. How many have seen it? How many watched it twice? A few did, right? Talk about a great movie with a wretched ending. It's horrible. Oh, I won't tell you, I won't spoil it for you, but it's just prepare to have your heart just ripped out and thrown on the floor and stepped on, right? The idea was that was kind of cathartic. You know, you'd enter into this experience and go through the pain and the suffering of this horrible ending and feel great when you were done. That's never worked for me. <laughs> but that was the idea, right? So here's the thing. Here's why I say all of that. Here's why I say all of that. Do you think it's coincidence that the that the, the playwrights that are writing these plays have great, very human, very emotive kind of stories with horrible endings would be the ones that would use the word jealousy so much. You take any human story with a lot of emotion, any human experience with a lot of tension, a lot of energy, and you pour a little jealousy into it, it's not going to end good. It just doesn't end well. Because it it's this fiery emotion that pushes people to action that is more often than not bad. So that's, that's really at the heart of what this word is all about. So when the Bible uses it, it's almost always negative, except when it's talking about God. Well, how do you make that work, right? In fact, in fact even sometimes when we're talking about God, it sounds bad. Like right here in Exodus 20, when God tells Israel he's jealous... And because of that, people that do what he doesn't want them to do, he not only punishes them, but their kids, their grandkids, and their great-grandkids. Oh, that's an attractive picture of God. That's a loving God. And so it causes some very, very real confusion, I guess, tension. So um, what, what, what's going on here, right? I mean, it's what he says. You should not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, on the children to the third and fourth generation, those who hate me. That just, that's not a good look, right? Until you ask them. See, the problem is we read a verse of Scripture like that, like it falls out of heaven in the middle of nothing, right? Like, you know, God's talking to Israel one day, and he's talking about, like, whatever, and then says, oh, by the way, I almost forgot to tell you, but you need to remember, I happen to be really jealous. You get on my bad side, I not only slap you around, but your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids. But that's not how it happened. He's talking about something. He's talking about idolatry. Do not worship or serve idols. Because when you worship and serve idols, that starts you and your 
children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren down a destructive path. And there are consequences to idolatry. It doesn't matter whether it's idolatry in the form of, of false gods and demons or the desire for money or power or possessions or influence or fame or notoriety. Anything that moves us to make an idol of anything moves us in a negative direction with serious consequences. Because there are some things that all idols, whether they are spiritual or real, have in common. They enslave us. They promise way more than they will ever deliver. They never ever satisfy us. And they ultimately do harm. And then let's remember what God says next in that Exodus passage. He says, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's not that God favors one group and hates the other. It's that idolatry has consequences. God loves us. He loves his people. He loves his family. He loves his creation. God so loved the world. Everything his hands created. God loves us. And he hates anything that would harm us. Even if it's something of our own choosing. And there's the hard part. He loves us. But he hates anything that would bring us harm even if we have freely chosen it ourselves. And that's what's going on in that verse, right? And so Paul has a very real concern about the Corinthian church that leads him to raise this subject of jealousy, right? He's, there's a very real danger for the Corinthian church. He says in verse 3, But I am afraid that lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of of devotion to Christ. And the Corinthian church had shown a very clear propensity toward that. They were you go back and you read 1 Corinthians again, they were chasing all kinds of wacky ideas. And none of them reflected the purity and the simplicity of the gospel. None of them talked about pure devotion, right? Verse 4, for if, and here Paul illustrates it. He says, if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom you've not we have not preached, and you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted. You bear this beautifully. You're so good at it. Back down in verse 20, he says, if somebody walks up and slaps you in the face, you accept that. But the simplicity of the gospel they struggled with. So Paul was deeply concerned they were moving away from God. And so he speaks with a godly jealousy. See, Paul's concern is singular, and that is why he can say, my jealousy for you, my emotive investment in you, that is causing me to act in such a decisive way, and yes, even risk some serious hurt feelings at the very least, I'll risk that because of what is at stake. Verse 3, I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ. Paul knows the church is in his. One of the most important things to note about Paul's writings is there's two words you will never see Paul use. My church. Paul never, never says that. Here's a man that founded how many churches? And yet we don't have a single record of Paul saying my church. It was Christ's church. It was God's church. 
And Paul was extremely conscious of that fact. And that's why he can act in such a jealous way and call it a godly jealousy because his motivation was always the relationship between the church and its Savior. So that's what Paul was doing. He's saying, what I'm engaged in here, I'm getting hot, yeah. There's some fire involved here. I'm emotionally invested, that's right. And I'm going to say the things that need to be said, and if, even if it turns out bad, I'm still going to say it because it needs to be said. Right? Because what's at, what's at stake is so important that I'm willing to take those risks. So how do we step into that? Well, again, if we think back to the Exodus passage, where God says, I'm a jealous God, how do we normally react if, like when unbelievers, again, even sincere unbelievers, they raise that verse in a discussion? Well, what about what God says he's jealous? Isn't our reaction, it's, mine's always been, well, he's not jealous like we're jealous, right? And there's a certain truth to that. But um, wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be better, both for the sake of our listener and for ourselves, if when somebody says, well, you know, the Bible says God is jealous, if we said, yeah, you're right, he is. The problem is in our jealousy, instead of saying his jealousy's not like ours, we should be saying, and wouldn't it be great if our jealousy was like his? If our jealousy was like his jealousy, which is to be jealous for the right things, or zealous, if that word makes you feel better, you can interchange them if you want. To be highly invested, highly emotive, highly engaged, and willing to take risks, because what we're talking about is so important. If we had a jealousy that caused us to be consumed with concern about the well-being of things that should concern us. We've been talking for several chapters now in this letter about repentance, not only of sin, but repentance of an incorrect worldview. Because we all come to Christ with a messed up worldview. We all come to Christ with a messed up value system. Not just the individual acts of sin that we have to repent of. Not that that's not enough to keep us busy. But we repent of sin, but we also need to change our thinking about our value system. And I suggested you can start with the Sermon on the Mountain, the Beatitudes as a place to rebuild a biblical worldview. And to be jealous of that worldview, not only in our own thinking, but in our conduct towards one another. Replacing a carnal worldview with a kingdom worldview. This process is so critical. And the only difference... If there's still any confusion in your mind, the only difference between godly jealousy and carnal, sinful, worldly jealousy is what made us jealous. That's the difference. What made us jealous? Was it selfish jealous? Was I selfish because I wasn't getting my fair share? or I wasn't getting what I wanted, or I thought what I was entitled to, or is it a jealousy because that which is most important to me, my faith, my family, my marriage, the fellowship that I'm part of, that was threatened. When my jealousy is a response to those things, that's a godly jealousy. When it's a response to my interests, that's carnal jealousy, right? The only difference between godly jealousy and carnal, sinful, worldly jealousy is what it is that makes us jealous. But that and the consequences. The consequences can change too. See, I believe really seriously that as the people of God, we really need, in this, in this present time, when there is so much flux in the way we think culturally, when so many cultural norms are, are 
shifting and being reevaluated. And we, and we import that discussion into our own thinking. We, 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 I think, are all in a place of asking ourselves, what really is the value system that I want to embrace, right? More or less, we're all engaged in that. Whether we know it or not, we are. I think we need to be seriously thinking about our worldview, our values, where they come from, and where they're taking us. It is our value system that ultimately directs where we will end up. And so to establish a biblical worldview with biblical values, with kingdom values, and then from that act with a godly jealousy to, to protect those things. Now, I'm not going to sit here and give you a list because that would end up in just another form of legalism, wouldn't it? And we wouldn't have gained much. But I want, I want to encourage each one of us, right, to spend some serious time with his word. And if you want to know where to start, Sermon on the Mount, good place to start, right? And ask the Lord to build within us individually and corporatively a series of values, a kingdom worldview that's worth getting jealous over. Godly way. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Father, Paul talks about the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of our devotion to Christ. And Lord, we really tend to make it, I think, a lot more complicated than it needs to be. So I pray as we go through the week, as we, go, as we spend our days, Lord, that we would be careful, Lord, to, I think, first evaluate what we, what we value now. Ask ourselves the question, what is it that I really care about now? What is it that motivates me now? And then ask ourselves if that really lines up with, with what the Word of God teaches us. And then, Father, where we find that that's lacking, to be very deliberate to say, okay, I'm going to consciously pursue the things that the Word of God tells me I should value. I know my relationship with you has to be first. I know my relationship with my wife and my children has to be, has to be a, a high priority. My relationships within the body of Christ, Father, these relationships that will pass beyond the veil into eternity, Lord, they're the things I have to value. Father, help us as we are careful and diligent to go through a process of ensuring that our worldview, our values are kingdom-oriented, your kingdom. As we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, Lord. Help us, we pray to this end, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.